Hey everybody, welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, and as always, with me, Andreas Steno, founder and uh, CEO of Steno Research. Alf, we um, we are approaching the final session of the Macro Trading Floor, but it's been a great week uh, in global macro, at least if you're an interest rate hawk, I'd say. Uh, we've had 50 basis points from Bank of England. We've had 50 basis points from Norge's bank. Uh, and we've had Jay Powell on stage saying that we should expect interest rate hikes in the US in the quarters to come. So <clears throat> it feels like this story is just ongoing and ongoing and ongoing with central banks and their continued attempts to get ahead of that inflation curve. So what do you make of it after this week? Well, I think the bond market has a very strong opinion mm. of all of this. Um, if you look at yield curves globally, so you take Germany, you take UK, Australia, Canada, the US, anything you want, it's getting more and more inverted. And in many cases, you have already breached the pre-GFC inversion levels. So yield curve inversion is a global phenomenon. And the way that the market reacted to the Bank of England 50 basis point hike was extremely interesting. I mean, these guys come up surprised with a hawkish hike. I mean, it was not even fully priced in. Uh, less than 50% was priced in at the time of the meeting. They come up with 50 basis point. So they surprise. They come up with a relatively hawkish forward guidance as well. And what does the market do? I mean, it readjusts the very, very short end of the Sonia strip. So the Sonia strip being, you know, market implied Bank of England policy rates until December, January, February. They readjusted a little bit higher. Anything after that? It's actually priced for more cuts. Mm. Come again. So it's literally the market saying, I hear you. I mean, you are totally in control of the next three to six months of policy rates. I can't fight that. You set the Bank of England rate. But I am pretty much sure that the more you tighten now, the more damage you're going to do later on. And I find that reaction quite impressive on the very same day of a hawkish Bank of England hike. And same for the sterling. Yeah. They managed to rally. Nope. So. What do you make of, of that market reaction? I mean, it, it was actually kind of the same in, in Norway with that 50 basis point hike there as well. The Norwegian krona has taken a massive beating today on, on Friday where we record. So it's kind of interesting that these central banks trying to get ahead of the uh, inflation curve, so to speak, uh, ultimately end up with weaker currencies um, as a consequence of it. That is both the case in the UK and uh and in Norway um, after the hikes. Um, and I'm kind of starting to convince myself that um, this is not necessarily the result that they were after, right? <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, if you were uh, Andrew Bailey and you went on air trying to, to deliver a hawkish message, you would probably be pretty annoyed that 10 and 30 year bond yields fell pretty sharply after your <laughs> after your message, right? Uh, and and to give you an example, it's it's not a a, a one to one uh, comparison, but when 30-year bond yields in the mortgage space in the U.S. started dropping uh, through the hiking cycle, say, from, from late last year into the early parts of this year. Uh, you already now see the uh, repercussions of that in the housing market in the U.S. We've actually seen a rebound on the back of uh, that, say, quote-unquote, stimulus from lower 30-year mortgages. So 
even though they've managed to to bring up the very front end of rates, they don't necessarily get that effect in, say, the 10 and 30-year point, um, which could be an issue for them. It's not as big as uh, an issue as it is in the U.S. where everyone's got a 30-year, but um, you know what I mean. It's it's probably not what they were after. Yeah, you're totally right. And to be honest, if I hear central banks right now, Andreas, I mean, like the European Central Bank, for instance, looks to me very similarly positioned for a policy mistake uh, in July 2023, like it was in July 2008 and like it was in July 2011. I mean, the PMIs were released today. We're recording on Friday, the 23rd of June. And you have, I think, pretty clear signals that the European economy is already in a technical recession, but this might actually broaden up to be a broader recession as we speak. I mean, the services side of the economy is weakening as we speak. We have clear disinflationary forces in Europe coming forward. All leading indicators are pointing to a somehow re- relatively quick normalization of inflationary pressures. And yet, the European Central Bank is trying to sound as hawkish as they can. And I, I find it very funny that you, know, you have these bond market reactions where the ECB revises their core forecast, core inflation forecast higher. And that's why we should sell bonds. I mean, the ECB has been wrong about inflation for two years, and I don't think they're going to be right this time. It feels to me like they, they, they have been wrong about inflation, underestimating them, and now they don't want to be wrong in not sounding hawkish enough. But we are, you know, we are looking at this inflationary impulse here. We're looking at potentially much weaker economies going forward, and at the same time, central banks are trying to sound more hawkish doesn't really look to me like an environment where you can feel very comfortable being long risk. At the same time, this is like a bit of a late stage cycle where you mentioned it last week. It was very, very good insight. You maybe need to be more relaxed to see a proper sell-off. And I went back and I looked at home builders. So if you look at home builders in 2008, and this really blew me out of my mind. In 2008, home builders rallied two times 50% from the lows. <laughs> in 2008, I mean, this was the worst housing crisis in modern history, and home builders rallied twice by 50%. This is how much the flow driven, position driven kind of rally and the low volatility flows can actually exacerbate these short squeezes. But right now, we are hearing exactly the, this kind of narrative building back again, right? Housing is fine. Hey, housing works with 7% mortgage rates. What's the problem? Look at home builders. Maybe you need this relaxation back in markets to actually get a trigger for a proper risk off. Yeah. But if you look at the US housing market, I think we have uh, what I tend to call the golden handcuff syndrome at play, uh, meaning that a lot of uh, homeowners, they're kind of, quote-unquote, stuck uh, in their home with a 3% mortgage from the pandemic. Uh, and they don't really have any good incentives of moving, meaning that the supply is non-existent. And we we see a shrinking supply again. Uh, I, I at least read uh, that golden handcuff um, syndrome a, a bit into the current rebound that we see in housing. Uh, transaction volumes are still low. Um, supply is still low. So it, it is an odd scenario. Uh, and we've obviously seen um, housing markets with a 
a much sort of swifter pass through of interest rates being more vulnerable to the situation so far. But even Bank of Canada used a, a rebound in the housing market as an excuse to restart the the, the hiking cycle, right? Uh, and that is um, <laughs> certainly one of the places on earth with high interest rate sensitivity. Um, so it is interesting, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, this is starting to look more and more uh, like the run-up to the financial crisis. It's not because I'm comparing the potential recession to what happened in 08, 09, but uh, the run-up to it at least looks very similar. I mean, I, I tend to share the fact that we are in, we have now more ingredients for a sharper move than we had a couple of months ago. I mean, the, both the implied and realized volatility in the S&P 500 is now 10% annualized on a 30-day basis. I mean, this is volatility levels that are consistent with 2019 or 2018. I mean, periods that didn't have much of this macro uncertainties we have today. So you have that kind of carry mentality. I don't know how many clients approached me over the last two weeks asking me, hey, Alf, what's the, you know, what's the best risk-adjusted carry trade I can get myself long? When you get a lot of these questions, it means people are getting dragged in, which is a natural process, I think. When vol compresses, people are looking for carry trades, and you need this kind of participation in either outright volatility selling strategies or a derivative of that, like can be a carry trade. You need to have that kind of mentality, I guess, to trigger what can be a position-driven sell-off. And yeah. you know, macro is honestly uh, at crossroads here. Over the next two to three months, I think you either get data that is Goldilocks consistent, so you get a nominal growth slowdown, but people don't freak out, Andreas, right? So you get some pickup in jobless claims, lower inflation, and people still have this vibe of, yeah, well, it's okay, right? I mean, we're not in a recession, we're growing at 1%, it's Goldilocks. Or you get a derivative of that soft data that looks, that smells a bit more recessionary. And if I look at market pricing right now, there is a set of asset classes that are definitely trading as if we are going to head to a recession pretty soon. What comes to mind is, I mean, just look at commodities. Mm. I look at oil prices and every day I'm, I'm trying to reach new lows and we make, you know, lower lows week after week after week. And we have China that is, I don't know what everybody was expecting a week ago that would, they would come up over the weekend with some massive program. We haven't heard anything for the last 10 days. There's literally nothing. And I keep asking myself, what can they do? Like, you know, what's, what's the outcome here? Can they devalue the, the one? Well, if you look at oil prices priced in Remimbi, it's not like 2015. They were very low back then. They could risk a devaluation that made their imports much more expensive because commodities were already much cheaper than today. Today, you can't really say that. What are they going to do? More credit? I don't know. It doesn't seem to me like they have a solution. But Elf, the long US dollar versus uh, CNY is probably the most crowded uh, <laughs> tourist trade out there right now. It's a great carry. Um, it's, it's, it's yielding in a relatively stable way right now. Uh, very, very interesting carry relative to volatility and stuff like that. Uh, and I, I, I honestly get the feeling that all of my 
major sparing partners along this trade. Uh, I'm long the trade myself as well, but that's kind of an an interesting setup, right? Because if 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 everyone is already aboard the train, so to speak, then um, I guess there is a risk of a reversal. The the, the 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 issue for me here is what would what could trigger the reversal of that dollar trade versus the CNY at this juncture. Um, I think the biggest risk is that we get. I'd say just a small hint from manufacturing somewhere on globe that that uh, we will get a short-term rebound in manufacturing. Then the trade will reverse sharply. Um, I don't really... Maybe it, actually the South Korean numbers this week had s- small signs of, 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 of such a rebound, but then other uh, manufacturing hubs and industrial uh, countries such as Sweden look outright apples more. So, and I... I, I really struggle to see that trigger right now. So I remain long, but I, I also accept what you're saying, that it it seems like a bit of a tourist trade, if you know what I mean. I mean, China has basically created an artificial investment-led cycle, and all credit stimulus has been led towards investments and sometimes ghost infrastructure stuff that boosted GDP in the past. And I don't know if they're going to go for the same, maybe, but even if they go for the same, I don't think markets are going to be overly impressed. I mean, what we're looking at here is I think markets want something more consumer driven from China. So some fiscal stimulus, maybe something China has effectively never done. And the other way, of course, to stimulate consumer demand in China is clearly to weaken the renminbi, but both of them are very hard uh, solution to foresee. I don't see a lot of chatter about either of the two from China as we speak. And so the path of least resistance is they do nothing. They do very little. They do ineffective policies. And, you know, I, I don't know if the world can have a global bull market run without China contributing to global growth as it did in the past. I mean, the engine of global growth here is not running. And the other thing I noticed as well on equity markets is the expectations for earnings per share growth has been steadily revised up over the last two months. So now if you're looking at blended 12 months forward earnings expectations in the S&P, you're looking at plus four, plus five percent. You know, those are not materially strong expectations, but at some point we're expecting earnings to contract. It was built in the cake already. And now it's not built in the cake anymore, as if effectively we are repricing away completely the recessionary tail. And I understand this, Andreas, because if you're a trader and you have you know, put up a lot of trades that were recessionary trades in the first half of the year, you have spent premium for mostly nothing in return, right? And at some point you get frustrated and you look for something else. And I think the moment where people get frustrated and look for something else, especially as time plays a role here, the longer you keep policy tight, the higher the chance that over time something will effectively break. But there is another time problem. It's a time inconsistency problem. You can't be in negative carry trades, in insurance trades, in the recessionary trades that long because as a hedge fund manager, you get stopped out. Yeah. And I find that combination of time lags, the macro time lags, and the risk management time lags, I find that combination very fascinating. But I, I still have the feeling that um, when I talk to investment committees from what I call real money players in Europe, so institutions like pension funds and asset managers, that most of them are stuck behind this move that we've seen in equities over the 
uh, course of, of the early innings of Q2 and into into June here. And I think it's relatively interesting that mechanically, these guys need to buy risk now, even though they don't like to. Um, and that, I guess that's kind of the talk of war now. Um, interest rate hikes, despite this inflation uh, in at least the producer leg of the uh, inflation equation, uh, paired with a lot of risk takers being stuck behind on risk taking relative to benchmarks throughout the year. Uh, and obviously you cannot stay behind that curve for too long either um, as a real um, money manager. But one thing I've also noted, Elf, uh, and this could turn out to be very relevant, is that we've seen a sharp uh, reversal lower in the KRE, so the broad uh, regional banking index in the US again. I think the regional banks and in general, uh, those trades that suffered through March and April, they uh, they basically breathed a side, sort of a side of relief after the hopes of the Federal Reserve pausing. And given what we've heard from Powell this week, given what we've seen from uh, Bank of England and also Scandinavian central banks, maybe it's time to worry a little bit about these banks that do not like tighter monetary policy from here. Well, the, this is another of these sentiments, right? Uh, up until mm. two weeks ago, ah, regional banks are fine, man. You haven't heard anything anymore for a couple of months. It's all mm. solved. It's like the housing market. There is nothing to worry about, Andreas, anymore, you know? Of course, I'm sarcastic. There is a lot mm. to worry about there. And, uh, you know, when it comes to regional banks, if you think through their business model, you either die straight away from poor risk management and then the Federal Reserve has backstopped that risk. But there is the other risk that you can't backstop. The other risk is the hit to profitability from the fact that you know you can't really compete with deposit rates, risk-free deposit mm. rates at 5%. If you don't have a diversified corporate base that stays with you because they have cross-benefits of banking with you, but you rather want to bank with a more volatile customer base, you can't compete with risk-free rates at 5%. So either you bleed deposits slowly but surely, or you'll have to hike your deposit rates on the liability side, which means you'll have to compress your margins as a bank in the long run. And that's a hit to profitability. At the same time, when your asset quality is also deteriorating slowly but surely. So that doesn't go away. That's not magically fixed by the Fed. It doesn't hit headlines because it's a slow grinding problem in the background. But it is there, Andres. I don't think it just goes away magically. No. And uh, I'm starting to convince myself that um, we should worry a little bit about regionals and um, maybe banks on a broader setting as well. In a broader setting as well, maybe even European banks, um, given how the European PMI is printed today. Um, I, I, I've been saying it over and over and over over the past six weeks here that Europe was the consensus bet. Um, and it should no longer be the consensus bet, let me put it like that. Uh, I think I actually think Europe is showing more signs of fragility now than the US. What about our friends in Japan? I mean, we're doing a global <laughs> tour of the world here uh, in the last episode of the Macro Trading Floor, so why don't we head to Japan for a second? I, I've been... 
I think we discussed this before. We've discussed this before, right? But um, the point is probably that if Ueda wants to do something about this yield curve control, he will have to do it uh, almost in a similar fashion to how the Swiss National Bank pulled the rug from under the Euro-Swiss exchange rate floor. Uh, Because you cannot... uh, pre-hind anything at all related to yield curve control without actually compromising your yield curve control. So you'd have to take that decision from one second to the next. Um, And I mean, we had inflation numbers out today. And if we look at core core momentum, um, it's still accelerating in Japan. Uh, So the UK and Japan, they're probably the two biggest laggards in uh, inflation space right now. Maybe Australia joins that. Uh, but at least the pressure is there from a price perspective. Um, and prices keep surprising to the upside of what Bank of Japan uh, expects. So, I, I, I mean, I've given up on, on, on the yen trade. Uh, I've given up on, on, um, on trying... trying on, I'm trying to time this Bank of Japan policy shift if it ever happens. But if it happens, and I can guarantee you, then it will be a surprise to all of us um, because that needs to be a surprise. It's the curse of negative carry trades. I mean, you've got to time them right. Otherwise, at some point, you have to give up. And it's mm. in the name of the game. And now I think there are a couple of ingredients, funnily enough, that might make the Japanese yen trade perhaps look like a decent um, expected value trade. First of all, around 142, 143 in dollar yen, these guys have come up and talked the yen up, right? And there is a difference between talking and doing something, but they have so many dollar reserves to spend that if they want to try and stop the bleeding, they can, at least temporarily. Mm. So you have a little bit of a line in the sand kind of feeling around 143. Um, So let's say your downside is somehow limited, somehow. And the other is that as you're getting a global disinflationary wave, at least in my opinion, the data is coming in weaker, that generally already helps the yen because it kind of compresses a bit little differentials already by itself. We're seeing bonds attempting a little bit of a rally as well, both in Europe and in the US. So that should help the yen. But really here, the defining part of the trade is what is Weda actually looking for? I don't fully get it. I mean, the guy is saying, I need to see core inflation sustainably getting to 2%. I mean, dude, services inflation is 4% in in Japan, and it's been there already for a few months. So, you know, you are getting there. And then he's talking about wages, but wages in Japan are really slow-moving train. You have negotiations that are calendar scheduled. It's a much less flexible labor market. So it seems to me like he doesn't really give us a quantitative toolkit to assess when he's going to move. Maybe he just wants that Kuroda surprise fashion, Andreas. Maybe. maybe. Yeah. Uh, but given what you say uh, around Japan and uh, the global disinflationary trends, uh, which I, by the way, completely agree with, uh, I kind of think, also given how central banks have reacted uh, to the cocktail of positive surprises on core CPI while everything from money growth to uh, input prices and output prices in the producer leg, they keep surprising substantially to the downside. And I mean, look at 
history. Uh, and now I'm branding off. Look at history. PPIs move before CPIs. Money growth moves before PPI. We have all of the signs now that the CPI will also be hit negatively very soon. Uh, I, I'm very confident saying that. Um, I wouldn't even rule out that we get months with a decline in the consumer price index within, say, three, four months from now. I think that's a feasible scenario in many Western countries. But given how central banks remain extremely reluctant in taking a stance on this um, and instead want to just insurance hike, I think the safest bet from a curve perspective is actually to be long duration in the very fine. I mean, that 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 is to me the best risk reward out there um, into a scenario like this. Uh, and I'm still long the TLT as a consequence. Okay, if it's trade idea time, then I'm going to shoot mine. Um, so I've been now for a couple of weeks and still with quite some conviction, long bonds. Uh, my topic is bonds because I think that this inflationary wave in Europe is going to be pretty, pretty strong. And the curve is going to flatten out for sure even further because the ECB pins the front end. But guys, the back end of the, the yield curve is controlled by actual growth data and actual inflation data. I don't care what ECB forecasts. It's about actual inflation, actual growth. And they're coming down. So long boons is a high conviction trade. I also like optionality in long-end treasuries. Honestly, I mean, these bond calls, which completely exploded during the banking crisis, have stayed rich for a while, but now bond market volatility has been coming down and people have sold these calls to try and monetize the premium. They're now trading at, I think, acceptable levels to try and play the convexity there. So I like mm. TLT calls. I like boons in general. Um, one thing I also like is to fade Chinese enthusiasm. And you can do that easily, I think, with um, FX pairs that are linked to China. So I tended to look at Australia, New Zealand, these kind of pairs, highly cyclical, highly linked to China, unless China goes fiscal, which is a different story, but we have no indication of that yet. I think it's a good theme to fade a bit of these currencies. Canada is an interesting one. Yeah. I mean, oil just keeps dropping and the Canadian dollar is instead responding basically only to the Bank of Canada monetary policy. I don't know for how long that divergence can go on. So I am looking at the Canadian dollar as well as an expression there. And uh, one place where I'm looking to buy downside optionality is home builders. Because maybe I don't understand anymore how the housing market works, but... You know, I think given the levels where this stuff is trading, it has rallied 45% from the lows. Everybody seems to agree now that there is nothing anymore to worry about the housing market. I think it's okay to double a little bit of expense and premium to buy um, home builders puts at some point. I cannot convince you to buy my real estate exposure in China. <laughs> no, thank you very much, mate. Yours. But it's okay. I mean, look, I, I always say, I think I went long Chinese real estate uh, early in 2022 when uh, I think Xi Jinping was starting to say, oh, no, 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 this real estate thing has gone too far. You know, we want to support the system. And I said, okay, if he wants to support the system, I'm going to go long um, the Chinese real estate ETF. He didn't support shit. I'm sorry, but he just let it deleverage de all the way through. And I don't know if this, these packages are going to work this time. I, I think the balance sheet recession in China is more acute than people imagine. Yeah. 
but I sadly remain long the dictator to use Joe Biden's words here. So um, let's see whether I need to close that next week. Alf, it's been a tremendous pleasure hosting the Macro Trading Flow again uh, with you this week. And um, as you may have noted, if you listened to the version last week, uh, we are approaching the conclusion of this podcast, not just this episode, but the podcast. Um, at least we're pausing it. And the question, Alf, is whether this is a longer or a shorter pause than we should expect from the Fed. I don't know whether you have a view on that. <laughs> well, guys, um, I mean, I, I feel like Powell now with Andreas being one of these journalists going like, is it a skip or is it a pause? Uh, I'm going to call it a pause. So it's not a skip. Definitely not a skip. It's a pause. Uh, we're going to take quite some time, I think, before we think about restarting the macro trading floor. But I agree that it's been a great pleasure doing this and having uh, you guys supporting us. I think there are like, I don't know what, 40,000 people listening to this every week, which makes me really happy. And now, because you stayed with us for a year, more actually, more than a year, yeah. where are you going? I mean, this doesn't continue, but neither of us are going anywhere. So if you are, I don't know what, a hedge fund manager, an asset manager, an investment advisor, a family office, whatever. If you're going to miss what I have to say, you don't have to miss that. I mean, I have a dedicated institutional service. All the insights and the trade ideas are in audio format as well, exactly like what you hear every Sunday on the macro trading floor. So if you want to continue listening to what I have to say on macro and trade ideas, if you're a loyal listener of the macro trading floor, I also have a special deal with you with limited spots available. Send me an email at pro at themacrocompass.com. Otherwise, DM on Twitter at MacroAlf or on LinkedIn, and we can arrange an institutional dedicated service. This is now my pitch to you, in case you want to listen to me, back to Andreas, because you should, uh, of course, keep following Andreas too. If you want to listen to one of the best macro podcasts out there every Sunday, I've, of course, made a replacement for you. Um, so Macro Sunday is the new podcast that you should listen to each and every Sunday. You can find it in the RSS feed already. Um, this Sunday, we are uh, hosting Warren Pies, a great friend of mine, but also a great analyst. Uh, so go have a, uh, a look at that podcast, Macro Sunday. And uh, on top of that, I will offer you uh, an exclusive discount if you want to join us at stenoresearch.com. Live portfolios, data hops, 30 articles a week, more or less. Um, we cover uh, right about everything on globe. And uh, you can use Macro30 to get 30% off your first purchase. And we will leave the links to you in the show notes. With uh, my heart filled with emotions, this is the last episode for a while of the macro trading floor so from my end thanks to andreas especially for entertaining me and having some fun together here for more than a year building this very very big and successful podcast and of course thanks to all of you guys for listening to andreas and to me for all this time best wishes to you alpha best wishes to uh, all of you out there see you soon on other videos 